0: Welcome to Greater Than Code, episode 175. I'm John Sowers, and I'm here with Karina Zona.
1: Hi, yeah, this morning our guest is Eric Meyer, and he's got quite a resume. He's been blogging for 20 years. He's been a developer for about 30 years on the web. Uh, He's been a member of a number of working groups for the W3C and written a number of books. He wants to be modest and tell you that it's only a few, so we're going to go with six. So welcome, Eric. It's great to see you.
2: Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Welcome to the show, Eric.
0: We're going to kick off with the first question that we always ask our guests, and that is, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it?
2: (laughs) I think to the extent that I have a superpower, it's the ability to explain things in a way that makes sense to at least most people. I'm not going to say everybody because I don't think anyone's that perfect, but you know, being a, being a communicator, being able to take technical concepts and sort of translate them to the audience. So if it's a group of middle schoolers, I could pitch, you know, HTML at their level. And if it's a group of people who have done development before but have never done web, then I could hopefully pitch it to their level. And how I acquired it, I think just by reading a ton, like my whole life. Ever since I learned to read, just read, 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 because that exposed me to a whole bunch of different ways of communicating. And my mother was a elementary school teacher as well, so I probably picked up some of it from her too.
0: So when you were reading, were you sort of actively looking at and analyzing the different ways that people were presenting things? It would just you just absorbed it by osmosis. <laughs> yeah,
2: it it was all all absorption. I mean, I'm counting in here, you know, reading when I was five and this was a while ago, so some of you may not recognize this, but like the time, life, how things work, book series, that sort of thing, you know, here's a thing with a bunch of diagrams. And then, you know, you go to the encyclopedia on the shelf because this was the era when families had encyclopedias on their bookshelves and you take it out and there aren't diagrams. There's a there's an article and maybe there's a picture and then, you know, reading fiction, you know, this author describes things this way and this author presents things this other way and just all of that sort of absorbing it over time.
1: So Eric, you blogged recently about what I think you sort of summarized as having discovered that your old posts go back 20 years and that Historically, there's a lot on the web that still exists from even longer than that, that recognizing that kind of legacy capability of the web itself, that we need to be thinking more about creating for stuff that can do that, can last for decades, can outlast perhaps even us ourselves. Can you elaborate a little on on how you got interested in this and what we can be doing?
2: Yeah, so, as you say, uh, just this past December, I sort of passed my 20 years of my website, meyerweb.com, uh, which basically went online early December of 1999. And one of the things I noticed was that when I went back and looked at that post, so I have I have this thing in on all of my posts that says how long ago a post was published. The date is down at the bottom, like the actual raw date is down at the bottom, but at the top it'll say something like, you know, published a week ago or published three months ago. And in this case... Uh, It said published 20 years and five days ago, even though it was the actual anniversary of the post. It should have just said 20 years ago, not 20 years, five days ago. And I couldn't figure it out for a second. And then I realized the relative time routine that I had written, like 10 or 15 years previously, I had not accounted for leap years. I had just said every year is, you know... However many seconds or milliseconds, you know, I'm sure I didn't write out the number, but I had just said, you know, a year is this many seconds. Well, some years are more seconds, but I hadn't accounted for that. And so there had been this drift over time, which I hadn't really noticed. And at the time I wrote the routine, even if I thought about leap years, and I'm not sure that I did, but even if I did, I might've thought "Eh, a day or two, what's it going to matter? Not thinking, Hey, this website might still be here after 20 years or 30 years. It might've gone through a week's worth of leap years at some point. And that sort of that fed into uh, a thing I've been thinking about recently, which is that the web itself, the technologies that underpin the web are very long-term, right? HTTP sure, you know we have HTTP1 and then HTTP 1.1 and HTTP2 and so on and so forth. but HTTP is now 30 years old. HTML is 30 years old, right I feel like we're used to thinking of the web as a, a short-term medium, and it's not. Right? We think about our development in you know, six-month or year timescales. We think about our code running in a few-year timescales, perhaps. Our designs, we figure we're going to get redesigned in a few years. And we don't really have to think about what's this going to be like in 20 years. But the problem is that we do. And the web itself is actually designed to be that long-term. Once you start to get into both what was possible... Thirty years ago, and what's you know what happens if you take a current web page and feed it to a thirty-year-old web browser? There's a remarkable amount of robustness, both backwards and forwards in time, right? So, like most of the very first elements that Tim Berners-Lee came up with are still supported in browsers today, including a few that probably most of us on this call, let alone people listening to uh, this podcast, won't have ever heard of. There are a few very, very early tags that got dropped, but they got dropped within a year or two, and they usually got replaced by something else. So there was a – one of the ones that we actually lost was the H0 element. There was a heading level 0. Nice. Um, now it's heading level 1 through 6 instead of 0 through 6. There was also, even early on, there there was a, a proposal for a highlighted phrase. It was HP and then a number, and it could be an arbitrary number. So you could like highlighted phrase 34 would be HP 34 and then slash HP 34. Okay. That got dropped early, but there's the element plain text. Plain text is still supported in browsers today. Remember that. Yeah. And nobody ever uses it and it's not a surprise, right? Because plain text basically says everything after this plain text opening element is literally plain text. If there's markup, it should just be presented as text. So you can't ever close the plain text element. Like, slash plain text is just rendered as raw text. Nobody, you know, and then slash body, slash HTML, whatever else. That just all gets put in the browser window. But that's still supported in browsers today. And yet, very few people have heard of it. Sarah Drasner last year posted something about base href. For those of us who have been doing base href for a long time. Got, I don't know, 2,000 retweets or something. And all the comments were mind blown, why did I never know about this? How, who, why did no one ever tell me about the base element? And, you know, those of us who have been around for a while are just like, ah, kids, they don't learn any. What do they teach in schools these days? Actually, the fault is ours. We didn't tell them, right? We didn't pass that knowledge on. So the technologies themselves are, you know, have persisted over very long timescales. And for that matter, if I take an HTML page that has a details element in it, details is era 2016 or so and I load it up in links from third you know 20 30 years ago I can still see the content you know I'm not going to necessarily get all of the interactive capabilities of the details element but the content is there because the web from its inception was designed to be you know robust accessible in the most fundamental uh, meaning of the term accessible the information accessible to as many people as possible. And, you know, the elements were designed in such a way as, you know, if you don't recognize this element, great, just show the content anyway. That's a fundamental design principle of the web. And it's operated over what, to those of us who think in our usual short-term timeframes, it's an astonishing length of time. I mean, 30 years is enough time for somebody to be born, grow up. You know, finish schooling, start a family, <laughs> maybe switch jobs a time or two. That's a long time. And yet these technologies are still fairly robust over time. Now, I'm not saying that you could take Mosaic and throw it at a React site and have it render everything correctly, but that's more of a failing of React or, you know, Ember, whatever. If you're, or even if it's a bespoke framework, if you're rendering everything through JavaScript and you, try to show that to mosaic you're not going to get anything but that's not really mosaic's fault (laughs) right that's because everything is being rendered via javascript which is not a robust language there's a place for it don't get me wrong i'm not here to say javascript sucks and we should never use it i use javascript quite a bit but that's you know those are the sorts of things that um, we don't really think about, and I think with frameworks, I say React because it's the most popular one. I'm not picking on React specifically here, but the sorts of you know, dynamic generation of content that we do a lot doesn't keep this long-term... It's not considered over long, term, long time frames. You know, If you had written a, a site like this where all of the content is handled through JavaScript and you did it in, I don't know, MooTools... And it's still on that version of MooTools that came out 10 years ago. And maybe JavaScript has broken stuff that MooTools was using since then, right? So this site, which might have had really interesting information, stops working. That's not, really, that's not a good idea, and we should be thinking over longer terms. It's the, okay, I'm bashing out this code now. What happens if this code is still running in a decade, right? Have I thought about that? Have I set this up so that somebody in a decade can come back to this code and actually deal with it and update it if necessary, maintain it, you know, if necessary. In the banking sector, people are used to this, right? People write COBOL and expect, well, minus Y2K. Y2K was a, definitely a thing. People didn't think far enough ahead, but I think that lesson got learned at that time by the, you know, the people who are fixing all the Y2K bugs who were thinking, well, is this still going to work in 2038 when the Unix timestamp problem kicks in? And, you know... Like that. Anyway, sorry, I, I went on for a long time, but since we're talking about long times.
1: So when you were talking about frameworks essentially doing things that break the web, frameworks have become the dominant way that we, especially at a professional level, not necessarily a personal level, are creating the web. And so that means that essentially we are creating something very long term and arguably disposable. So how do we within the fact that we absolutely are going to continue to use frameworks, how do we still create that long-term that you're talking about?
2: So, my, I mean, in an ideal world, you would develop in the framework, but deploy with something more stable over long timescales, right? Because when you get right down to it, whatever that JavaScript framework is, it's generating an HTML DOM and it's generating CSS, right? That's, the browser is not just, well, in most cases, the browser is not just like drawing canvas. (laughs) Um, I'm sure there are sites that do that. But, you know, taking that thing that you rapidly developed using your framework and translating it into something that will be more robust over long time scales, whether it's static HTML or it's HTML that's enhanced by JavaScript, whatever that is, that's what I would recommend. Because that takes the thing that you're trying to provide to people and moves it to the most stable and robust layer rather than keeping it in a layer where if somebody has a Nokia candy phone, a feature phone as they're called in, in that industry, which is to say not a smartphone, that they can still get the content if they need it. Yeah, that's one thing I like
0: about the a lot of the new static site generation frameworks that are mm-hmm. around today for simpler types of sites. They do give you that, Nice development system where you're not just in Notepad, you know, typing HTML tags, but you do render down into something very static and very long lasting.
2: Right. Yeah, it's been an interesting movement to see. It seems to be happening, as you say, mostly in personal sites. And and yeah, I mean, there are some agencies that are doing that for client sites, right? If it's the local bakery needs a site, they might um, where they want a baking blog. So that it needs to be updated on a regular basis, they are still doing it through static site generators. You know, I don't imagine Facebook will be moving to 11t anytime soon. Although that would be super interesting to see how that worked out. But yeah, I I would like to see more of that ethic adopted throughout the industry because, as you you know, as you say, you have this content management system, but it all gets rendered down to something that's more static, and static is often a sort of a wrinkle your nose word amongst, um, some of our, our peers, but it really shouldn't be because static is stable. Right. And, um, for the longest, I don't even know if this is still true, but for the longest time, CNN.com was all static pages. They had a content management system, but like literally for like 20 years ago, they had, I think it was called vignette story server was their content management system, but they rendered everything out to static HTML, which is one of the reasons why CNN became a really popular site for news because it was super fast and it worked across lots of different browsers. I don't know if they're still doing that or not, but it's a it's an approach that makes sense. And it it actually made sense for them too under peak load conditions such as when, you know, huge breaking like, you know, global news stories were breaking. They could take the homepage and manually shave off bytes to get it as small as possible so that they could keep the server up for as many people as possible. Now, I get that most of us don't have the kind of traffic that CNN.com might get, but it's still it's worth having that as a possibility to say, you know what, for right now, because we just got featured on uh, Business Insider and the entire world is beating a path to our site, it's already as stable as it can be and we can just shave things down to serve as many people as possible.
1: You earlier mentioned a word that really caught my attention because we try to discuss the human side of coding Mm -hmm. and use the word ethic. And I wonder, do you feel like there is an ethical dimension to all this?
2: Yes. I think for some sites, there's more of an ethical dimension than others. If I'm running let's and I'm, I'm I have nothing to do with this site, but let's say I'm managing the site for um rain r a i n n I would definitely feel an ethical responsibility to have that content available to as many people as possible in as many situations as possible, right because you don't know who needs that information by the side of a road or in an elevator or whatever whatever situation they're in where they maybe don't have a lot of bandwidth, they don't have a lot of time, but they still need that information, right? There's an ethical motivation there. There's there's a priority to serve as many people as possible, even if it doesn't look the same to everybody, right? It's, it's, it's that getting back to that original idea of accessibility in the sense of the web pricing ubiquity over consistency, right? As many people with as many devices as possible can get to this information. You know, if I'm if I'm running sort of a less weighty site, there might be less of an ethical consideration, but I don't think it's completely absent, right? Because this is really what the web is meant to be. It's meant to be information accessible as widely as possible. That was the original design vision. And that's how all of the technology in it basically has been constructed. HTML, CSS, you know, they're they're all done with the Is this backwards compatible, right? And sometimes that closes doors, and they have kept those doors closed. You know, there have been discussions at times in CSS, which I happen to know fairly well, where people have said, you know what, let's just change this thing about CSS. We know it will break old browsers, but people using old browsers need to get updated anyway. And the working group has consistently resisted that, has said, no, we can't break things in older browsers. We need to find another way to do this thing so that it won't cause incompatibilities. HTML has that same design principle. And I think that we both ethically and with an idea towards long-term accessibility need to take that same approach.
3: And, you know, well, I was in elementary school when the web started, but that was, (laughs) yeah, I laugh if you like, Um, that was, that was like, that's like the idea of the web, right? Like, that was the appeal is like, you install a browser, and in most cases, one comes with your computer when you take it out of the box, and that's it. You shouldn't have to worry about updating anything, installing anything. You just type where you want to go, and that's where you get to go. And like, how much of a revolutionary idea that was. Yeah. And yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely. HTTP and a URL. Those were the kind of, in my opinion, and not just my opinion, but I I agree with us. Those are sort of the two fundamental innovations of the web that make the web the web.
0: I feel like there's a a sort of a mindset difference between different uh, groups of developers. And I know I've experienced it myself, sort of as a developer in a sort of pseudo startup type environment. Uh, You know, I've certainly had the experience where I spend six months building a feature, and the feature may or may not launch. And if it does launch, it may may or may not be uh, adopted, and then it gets killed off and all the code is deleted within a couple of years. And so I think that tends to warp my perception of, like, the longevity of the things that I'm building because, you know, it could all be transformed. It could all be rewritten. It could be a new platform. We could be acquired and, like, have to rewrite everything in Java. And so we don't try and tend to think in those long-term ways. I've also had the experience of working on a, a website for a government agency. And I went back recently and it was as it, as I built it in 2004, that site is still running that has yep. had zero changes, no design overhauls, no functionality improvements. And it's a very different kind of a world between those two. And, and, you know, as you were highlighting like that need for longevity, I was thinking back on how, you know, my thinking process has been sort of warped into a much shorter term way by being in, in the end, end of the technical world that I live where things are fairly short term.
2: Yeah, and it's understandable, you know, I, I have certainly written my share of short term code. I mean, the the leap year problem that I that I did, but, you know plenty of other code where I've just sort of slammed it out because I got to get this done right now. And, um, you know, uh, I need, I need to do better too. And I, I think we all do because I, especially for those of us who started on the web early, like it was literally a new medium, right? There were things that you could say are sort of like it, but there was really nothing like it. And the way it took off, it always felt like new and shiny and you know, anything goes, and this might all be replaced in three years because that's what we were used to, but we're out of that phase. (laughs) Um, You know, and and you might say, well, no, uh, you know, the web couldn't possibly last another 30 years. Well, it might. It's lasted 30 years so far, and I don't see anything on the horizon that looks particularly like a replacement. Now, maybe if the web does get replaced it'll be something that comes all at once and we'll never you know we'll never see it coming but we have to make the best decisions we can based on the information we have and right now the information we have is the web is it the web will continue to evolve as it has evolved it will continue to gain in capabilities but this is what we have <laughs> so let's get used to it and let's get used to the idea of You know, like you said, I might develop this site, and 16 years later, I come back, and it's literally unchanged. Now, when you went back to your site, was all the information still available?
0: I don't have a login to that site, but everything looked like it hadn't changed. Like, the back end was probably still doing the same ETL process that was built, because this is pulling data out of government agency databases that probably have also not changed. Uh, So I imagine it's still exactly
2: as it was. So, I mean, the information was there. You did, you did your job, right? You, you developed for the long term, even if you didn't mean to. And that's, yes, in government set- settings, that's a higher priority, right? I would say in educational settings, um, academic settings, that's a priority. But I, I think in commercial settings, too, I mean, you know, Amazon doesn't necessarily need to keep every version of a product listing that it's ever had, Right, If a thing's not available for sale, maybe that should go offline. But Amazon itself should be fully accessible, and I'm, I'm sure they do a lot of work for that. And so it's the same kind of idea for all of our work, right? It, it, maybe I'm working on the About page, and I think six people will ever look at it. Well, I need to do the best job I can for those six people. Because if I don't do the best job I can, then I've let those people down.
1: I think this turns back to the issue of accessibility, because we love to essentially treat anyone with a disability as an edge case and six people seems like a very edge case so it's always difficult to have the conversations about how much resources should we put into edge cases if at all because it is really easy to say well you know skip that
2: Yes, Evan Hansley, I think, put this the best. Um, Some people have attributed this quote to me, but it's really me just repeating him. He said, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but what he said was, uh, when you say edge case, you're defining the edges of what you care about. You're saying what you care about and what you don't care about. And things beyond that edge are the things you're saying you don't care about. So when Sarah Wachter-Bechter and I uh, wrote Design for Real Life, we reframed it as stress cases. Rather than something being an, edge, being an edge case, it's really, it's a case that's stressing your assumptions and stressing your work, whether that's design or development. And um, I think we got that term from Jared Spool, you know, edge case, and it's an unfortunate framing. And it's a one that Sarah and I would really like to see people change because, again, like Evan said, you are saying, you these are the things on the edge, the things beyond that I don't care about. But you should care about that, right? Again, we're getting back to that that whole thing of accessibility meaning accessible to as many as possible. You know, whether that means they can get to it from their device, wherever they are, under whatever bandwidth conditions, you know, no matter how old their browser is, if they can at least get the content. It may not be as whiz-bangy as you developed it with the latest dev tools, right? They might not get the things that are flying in and out, or the little twisty that lets, you know, the accordion collapse. But they can still read the content. They can still consume that content and act upon it. That's what's really important. And it's important over, you know, more than just the 12 to 24-month window that a lot of us develop in. And I'm, I'm not, again, I, I want to make it clear, I'm not casting any stones here. I'm not saying that people are bad or uh, misguided for that. We all do it. We're short-sighted, yes, but short-sighted in the sense of we're looking in the short term. It's time, you know, look longer term, you're working on a, you're working in a medium that's now three decades old, and shows no signs of slowing down. So start to bring that into more of your work. And it, you know, I understand that that doesn't mean every little widget that your boss tasks you to develop is necessarily going to work 20 years from now. But do your best to make it so that it will work 20 years from now. If you get it wrong, you get it wrong, right? We can, Nobody can predict what the future will hold, but at least try. The harder, the, the more you try, the more of a practice it becomes, and the more of a practice it becomes, the more people you will serve over uh, greater
3: spans of time. So you said the word whiz-bangy, and that, what that made me think of immediately is, because we hear that wisdom a lot of like, you know, there's the essential stuff, and then there's the things that, you know, might capture more clicks or, Mm. you know, keep them on the page longer, but, you know, it's, it's not necessarily essential to, and, and I I guess one thing I'm thinking about is, are there ever times where, you know, there, there's a feature that feels like a whiz bang, but when you get right down to it, it, it is actually conveying semantic meaning to the user, and I can't think of a specific example but I'm just sort of wondering like maybe that that border is maybe a little bit fuzzy oh i mean yes all these borders are fuzzy <laughs> right. um, there is no
2: simple bright line to say you know here you must develop for long term and and there is is frippery right it's mm-hmm. it's always contextual right the basically the the answer to any question of should i use x is it depends that's our entire Field is a huge series of it depends decisions. When I say whiz bang, you know somebody says, you know, we need a pop up chat window. I I realize I'm classifying myself as one of the olds here by thinking of that as whiz bangy, but right, you know, we need a pop up chat window, and it should have this animation in it. Okay, great, you can do all that, but the important thing is to make sure that chat. Works for as many people as possible, even if it doesn't pop up in a window, even if it doesn't animate the little, you know, you're online right now thing because they're in IE 11 instead of Chrome 117, whatever uh, version of Chrome is out right now, right? It still works. Uh, Jeremy Keith has talked about this, not necessarily on the long time scales, but in, in terms of move everything to the most stable and most sort of the lowest layer you can. So he gave an example of Twitter could completely be done with HTML forms. Like, right? And then all of the like constant real-time streaming of new tweets into your timeline, all that stuff that's that's run through what we olds call AJAX, right? You can do that. But that's a progressive enhancement, right? It's it's an enhancement on top of that base layer of text area submit and an ordered list of tweets in a static page, let's say. Now I know Twitter is completely not developed that way, but there's an argument to be made that it should be, that it should be that very basic structure with the extra stuff layered on top so that if the extra stuff doesn't come in, it still works. And I have occasionally, very occasionally, and I have I actually have screen captures buried somewhere on my in my mass storage, of where Twitter has loaded and failed to load all of its style sheets. Right. So ever like things are everywhere, but there's at least at the time I took it, there was a text area and a submit, and at least once I managed to tweet under those conditions. Right. That's good. That's good development. I don't know if that's still the case. It might be it might I know they moved to some sort of JavaScript driven framework. You can see it in the fact that all of the CSS class names are basically random character strings. So that may not still be the case, but it was at the time. And you know, I also have page dumps of when I went to a news site like the BBC and their style sheet failed to load, but I could still see all of the headlines. They might not have looked like and been in the awesome font, you know, big above a, a picture. It might've been, you know, raw H one with a picture, big picture underneath it that wasn't properly sized. And then the a summary, but there was a hyperlink. I could click through to the, to the next thing, right? There was that basic level of access to content. It wasn't the greatest user experience but it was still there because they had progressively enhanced that and that's the kind of thing we need to we need to always have in mind is like okay this thing sure i can do all of this in javascript i could do every single bit of my site through javascript but you know what can I push down to the HTML layer? What can I push to the CSS layer? What can I push to what the browser has built in, rather than all of the stuff that I'm re-implementing in JavaScript because it fits better with the framework or it fits better with my programming sensibilities, or it just feels cool to do something new. Like I get that too. That's why I have side projects, which are just I'm going to do some some code, and it's it's going to be fun.
1: So you mentioned earlier. You know, One of the issues is that we are pretty short-sighted about how we think about use cases, for instance. I've gotten really interested in what we're doing lately with biometrics. And I saw an example the other day that really, A, took me aback, and B, seemed so obvious in retrospect, where there's something that's roughly a national identity card in India, and it assumes that you have two irises and ten fingers, which... (laughs) is not the case for a bunch of people and may not be the case through their entire lifetime. Right. But you know, in conversation, I probably wouldn't come up with that either. And I do try to think about that stuff. There's Mm -hmm. so many examples of where we do assume that the real world is essentially like the people in the room.
2: Yes. Which is why it's important to get as many different kinds of people into the room as you can. Right. That's why, Diverse teams tend to be stronger, and I don't, you know, not diverse in the sort of facile way that a lot of people mean it. I mean, have somebody on your team who's 65, and have you know, or or available to your team, even if not on your team, you know, have somebody who's not the same gender, the same ethnicity, the same uh, lived experience as other people on your team. They tend to do better work because they think of more of these cases up front. You know, when you're designing a thing. Somebody can say, uh, yo, I, I don't have 10 fingers, right? Um, or I know somebody who doesn't have 10 fingers. It can, Yeah, it can be very difficult because we do, we tend to think about the people who are in front of us. That's just human nature. It's how it is. And so developing practices that counteract that as much as possible is always a good idea. I mean, having access to as diverse a set of, effectively beta testers as, as you can find is always the best, right? But if you can challenge yourself early in the process of either developing or designing or both to say, you know, what am I assuming? And what if those assumptions are wrong, right? If I'm designing this security access system for a gym, what am I assuming? Am I assuming, you know, about what am I assuming about the men's and women's locker room? Does the gym have that distinction and, you know, are there gyms that might not have that distinction or do they have more than, you know, do they have men's, women's, and non-binary locker rooms? Like, you know, I, I haven't looked into this personally because I've never had to design a security access system for a gym, but someone who's working on that needs to think about those things and, you know, what am I assuming? Am I assuming that there is never a use case for somebody, you know, who is not quote-unquote approved for this locker room to need to be able to get into it. Right. And is there a case where, you know, have I have I thought about that? You know, what if I what if my assumptions that every gym even has this distinction? Maybe there are gyms that have unisex locker rooms. And does my system account for that? Can it handle that situation? I come up with that because uh, this is actually one of the case studies in Design for Real Life that Sarah and I wrote about Not quite what I'm talking about, but there was a gym in the UK, I believe, that installed a new uh, swipe your card to access the locker room uh, system, and the system had been designed. Now, the people at the gym didn't create it. They outsourced. But whoever had designed this system had assumed that anyone with a title of doctor had to be a man. So there was a woman who was a doctor who couldn't get into the women's locker room because... The system was like, your title is doctor. You don't belong in the women's locker room, okay? Which points to a whole raft of potential problems, one of which is that initial assumption of only men can be doctors. But there's also the question of why was the gym asking for people's titles in the first place, right? And if the gym had never asked for the titles, maybe this never would have been a problem. I I don't know because I don't know the, the details. But again, it gets back to that, challenging your, your assumptions. And yes, the membership application form for a gym is a design problem. It's a design exercise. It is designed in some way, right? Whether any thought was put into that design or not. Right. So whoever made the form might've been like, well, every form I've ever looked at has asked for a professional title. So we should ask for it too. When is a gym ever going to need to know that, that, you know, I have a PhD and the person next on the treadmill next to me doesn't. Right. Maybe that was used as a proxy for if we ever have a medical emergency, it would be good to know which of our members are doctors. Well, then don't ask for their title. Ask if they have medical training because nurses don't have that title and yet are super. Right. So it can fold out into a whole origami nested you know, thing of all these things we have to consider. But again, if you just say, well, titles are an edge case, you've now declared what you don't care about which is what will happen with that information or, you know, how that particular situation will, could backfire.
1: I think when we talked about designing for the long term, that also becomes relevant because if doctor is relevant, people become doctors. It's not an inherent right. attribute of your life. So right. if someone initially right. filled out that form, you know, maybe they gained a title, maybe they're no longer licensed. Either way, yep. you're making some pretty big assumptions about whatever you think is valuable about knowing that they're a doctor.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Well, something I'm thinking about now is because we 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 bring this up a lot in this podcast about who gets invited to the table mm. the, and who has that ability to sort of bring up, you know, draw upon their own life experiences to inform the product better. But, you know, if you take the case of the gym, if you brought on someone that was able to point out, make that point, but the gym was halfway built already, you know, imagine like what that would cost to, you know, are we going to what are we going to do? Are we going to like back? Are we going to tell them to tear down those walls so they can build new facilities for the locker rooms? You know, like. I, I think it's a it's also a question of like when people get invited to the table, yep. um, and if you're going to listen to them, like because ultimately a lot of those questions are going to come with a cost because you're you're breaking assumptions, mm-hmm. and you're probably going to have to change the system, and that's going to come with a cost in some in some way. So you have to be willing to like accept the consequences of what's you know what's brought up.
2: Yes, you do. Uh, it's always cheaper to figure identify those things before you start building, of course. But yes, there there will be a cost. But again, you know, at least I, I, I guess I would say at least if you've identified as many of these things as you can and figured out what the costs are, you can make a decision about well, these are the costs I'm not going to pay, right? It becomes an explicit these are the situations I'm going to write off, in effect. And you know, at a certain point, maybe you do have to do that. I mean, I would hope that you never have to write anyone off, but, you know, we do not live in a post-scarcity world. And so, you know, these are the decisions that have to get made, but I feel like too many of our decisions are made implicitly and without thought and without due consideration. And so we end up writing off people we never meant to write off. And I I guess what I'm coming down to is if you're going to write people off, don't be a coward about it. Do it explicitly, right? Be upfront about it. It's like, These are the things that we're not catering to, not as an ex post facto, like a sort of a back engineered rationalization, the, oh, we didn't think of that. All right. We're writing them off now. No, like do it up front, own your limitations, own the limits that you are going to set and live with them in effect. And hopefully, hopefully if you've done that and you know who you've written off, then over time you can move more of the people that you've written off out of that category and into the, now we're covering, now we're covering that, right. You know, we initially, we didn't support X. Now we do. Now we're working on supporting Y, which we don't, you know, who we don't support yet, but soon we plan to. And then after that's done, this is where we're going. Like have a roadmap for those things. Or, you know, I, I guess if you're never going to get to that, at least if someone asks, you can say, Nope, we're never doing that. And these are, you know, maybe you say why and maybe you don't, but at least you have an answer. Other than, oh, we're so sorry, we're looking at that. Which is, sometimes feels worse than someone just saying, nope, <laughs> not for you. Which I would hope we would never say about our sites To for someone to say, not for you. Because that's, the, I have never yet heard an argument that, you know, Site X is not for person Y that didn't come down to, I just don't want to have to think about or deal with this.
1: I've seen plenty. I think a no? big one is how we write off people outside of the U S um, okay. just with like address forms. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're just basically saying if you don't have an address or a credit card that conforms to a standard we're familiar with, you know, walk away.
2: <laughs> right. Right. I'm and like I say, I, I guess I'm okay with that. But again, well, I'm not okay with it. I think it's better than saying, "Oh, you're right," and and we'll look into maybe dealing with this. Right? It, at least you get the, the the straight answer. But again, that's that's a case of instead of saying, you know, we'll handle people outside the U.S. It's you know we don't want to we don't want to do that, right? It comes down to that's not a thing we want to do. Now maybe. Legally, you can't, right? Maybe the thing I'm doing is only legally available inside the U.S., but at least then you can say that. And it's not a case of, you know, we were too lazy to do it. It's the, we are legally barred from doing this for you. We're sorry, right? In those situations, I mean, it probably isn't a great answer to get, but at least it's a definitive, this is the deal, right? Rather than, oh, yeah, the form doesn't work because we didn't get around to implementing it so that it could handle non-U.S. addresses, And we're not going to because we don't care.
1: I think we talked about the legality. For instance, GDPR compliance Mm -hmm. only applies, obviously, within, I think it's the EU, right? So suddenly, for instance, it has to rethink what is, you know, their set of privacy laws. When are you violating? Does that mean sites are suddenly going to have to change the the way they approach privacy? I mean, that could Mm -hmm. be potentially huge. And then those limitations mean that suddenly now sites have to to serve up something different or choose, if they want to, serve up something different for a restrictive privacy policy versus one that potentially is much looser. So when we say you you may not be legally obligated in all locales to do that, is it really easier in the long term to be complying with the lowest standard in every possible place rather than you know, making one blanket standard that meets the highest standard, since you're gonna have to do that anyway.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with you completely. You're usually better off doing that.
3: Now, this was something that came up at a previous job, and it was related to. There's also the California law CCPA, which is is mm-hmm. similar. But the situation, in a nutshell, was basically we. We realized that when, when a user says, no, you may not put any cookies on my browser, that was breaking all kinds of features, some of which had nothing to do with privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were realizing, oh, this site is coupled, has some really uh, unfortunate couplings. Mm-hmm. And we hadn't realized, like, well, what do we do? <laughs> what? It, how are we going to create some kind of experience that will be uh, minimally useful to the user? Rather than, just like you said, they basically like, well, if you accept cookies, then basically just walk away. We have nothing for you. Well, mm. is that really what you want to do? Or do you want to give them something? Yeah. Even if it's not the same thing.
2: Right. I would always try to give them something. But, you know.
1: So, Eric, you alluded a couple of times to your book that is kind of different than most of the other books you written. Most of your yeah. books are about CSS standards. But you also wrote a book called Design for Real Life. And I think you've probably cited a couple of, of examples from that already. Are there some other ones that you feel are really relevant here?
2: I, I mean, I think everything in the book is relevant here, to one degree or another. There, there was a concept we came up with for a way to try to challenge the assumptions that a team is making, uh, which is to have somebody on a project be called the designated dissenter, um, where their whole well not their whole role but their role in that project is to look at all of the assumptions and and ask themselves what if they're wrong and bring that up to the team so you know if the team is moving towards let's develop on re- let's develop do this whole thing in react or other javascript driven framework for them to say okay what are we assuming there we're assuming that the user has a browser that can handle it we're assuming that you know whatever other assumptions come from that and then you know what if we're wrong then what happens, right? So somebody comes to the site with a Nokia feature phone web browser, text only line mode type browser, you know, what happens? Okay. It doesn't have to be, and the answer doesn't have to be, we don't use react or other framework, (laughs) but the answer, the answer might be, well, okay, here's how we're going to handle those failure states quote unquote failure states, not really failures, but those, those states that we hadn't necessarily thought about. So if uh, we're designing, heck, uh, if someone's putting together a mailing to all of the customers, someone to look at the copy and say, okay, what have we assumed in this copy? So uh, actually a good example that's not in our book because it, it actually postdates the book, but uh, Sarah Parmenter had this situation where I believe it's a company called Bloom and Wild in the UK, like uh, which is sort of a... It's not exactly a floral site, but think of like FTD here in the U.S., right? Every Mother's Day, people send flowers to their mothers, right? And so FTD, if you've signed up, if you've ever sent flowers to your FTD and, and made an account, then, you know, let's say FTD sends an email to everybody in their database that says, don't forget, Mother's Day is coming. Well, in Sarah's case, like, for, like many of us, in Sarah's case, her mother is dead, Right, So she got this thing from Bloom and Wild It's like Mother's Day's coming up, don't forget mom, you know something like that. I don't remember the exact phrasing. And she actually emailed them. She emailed the CEO and said or did the contact form whatever and said, you know, hey, you should really think about this. You know, cuz you know, some of us this this doesn't apply. Like literally there's there's no one to send flowers to and for a lot of us that hurts a lot. And you know, it would be so much better if you could just not send Mother's Day stuff to, to people like that or Father's Day stuff for people whose fathers have died or, you know, whatever. And the next year, they actually did it. Bloom and Wild actually did it. They sent a mail out before they sent that out, basically saying, you know, to everybody, saying Mother's Day's coming, but if you would like to opt out of that mail, like click here or what it, you know, whatever it was. They let their user base opt out. Literally, this became an international news story. Right, that this retailer because it blew up on Twitter. People were like, Oh my god, this is the best thing I've ever seen. I can't believe that a a retailer that you know that this company has actually thought about people like me. Mm -hmm. Right, and so a bunch of people opted out, and so they didn't get that email. And now, somewhere in the database, you know, the customer management, the whatever, the CRM. For Bloom and wild or whatever it is, you know, MailChimp, if that's what they're using. I, I don't know. There's a field that's like, you know, don't send people, these people mail on Mother's Day and maybe they've done the same thing for Father's Day and other days. I, I don't, I don't know, but right. Just that simple sort of human act, the sort of thing that we would do person to person, but we never really think about like business to consumer to say, Hey, is this a thing that you want? If not, let us know and then you won't have to deal with you won't have to do this anymore like i said like it was covered in the uk press and the story went around around the world basically that they had just done the same thing that any of us would have done with a friend who who maybe we knew had trouble with mother's day because maybe your mother's not dead maybe your mother is somebody you had to cut out of your life because they were incredibly toxic or like there's a lot of reasons why someone might not want to be part of the whole Mother's Day thing or Father's Day thing or whatever it is. And so, you know, if you had someone who you knew was maybe having trouble in in their family or whatever to say, hey, you know, do you want me to not mention Mother's Day? That's all they did. And probably wasn't even that hard to do, right? When anyone who's had experience with with these kinds of databases, like creating a field to say, this is what this person has opted out of, or this is what this person has opted into, if, if that's the way you want to structure it, not that hard to do it's just a matter of doing it as thinking about it and doing it. And so, you know, to get back to this designated dissenter, you know, when, when you're putting together uh, this mailing to say, you know, happy mother's day. Someone to say, is there maybe a different way we could approach this? Because that might not come off well to everyone. And, you know, we're not really here in the business of hurting or insulting or alienating the people who have trusted us with their information. The people who we have a relationship with, it's not the same, doesn't have the same closeness as a human-to-human relationship, but we have a relationship here. And while we may be emailing 150,000 people, every single one of those people perceives that interaction as individual, right? You're communicating at scale, but to everybody, like when I go on Facebook, I'm not thinking to myself, here's a timeline that was designed for 2 billion people. I'm thinking, this is my timeline, this is what Facebook is showing to me. It is an individual connection from my end. And the people on Facebook's end need to think about that. The people at Bloom and Wild, the people at FTD, the people at, you know, you and me, when we're designing this, that's another thing to think about is each of these connections is personal to the people that we're connecting with. That's a really hard problem, and I don't know that anyone's particularly cracked it. But it's it's worth tackling because... That's the medium we work in, especially those of us who work on, let's say, e-commerce or some sort of large community, Um, you know, an Amazon or a Facebook or whatever. It doesn't have to be that big, even if you're only emailing uh, a thousand people. That's still a thousand people you're emailing out to that every single one of them sees that email as a personal experience. It's an individual personal experience. And so someone who's a designated dissenter can hopefully identify some of the assumptions that are going into it. it's like what are we assuming with this piece of copy are we assuming uh, a heteronormative scenario for you know or whatever and if if this is going to someone who's not in a heteronormative situation does it still come off okay is there a different way we could do this that handles more people right so that's that was one of the other concepts there's there's several things in the book unfortunately it's not a very long book but we tried to pack it with as much as we could
1: I find this idea of the designated dissenter really fascinating. Mm. Uh, I know that I, as a woman, and a lot of other people who are in some sort of marginalized category in tech, have this experience when you're the only one on the team, you essentially, by voicing difference in a room full of groupthink, become the problem. Being Speaking up becomes something that's brave and can really affect your longevity. You know, it can become very tense uh, without meaning to be conflict. It's just you're the person in the way of us very quickly moving. Um, So, you know, as much as I really love this idea of a designated dissenter, it also makes me think about we need more than one. If it's a person who's designated, that person is going to, to be... That problem person on the team who doesn't even, you know, do the work, they're just the person who's always shooting down the work. So there has to be greater diversity so that nobody is seen as that, you know, (laughs) I'm going to go back to edge case, as that edge case on the team (laughs) who's screwing everything up.
2: Yeah, and actually one of the recommendations we make is that uh, for each project, that that role should be given to a different person. It should not always be the same person. Because then, yes, you're right. If it's always the same person, then everyone else learns to sort of tune them out, right? That's unfortunately what happens. That person's always, you know, the negative Nancy in the corner. We need to not, you know, they're going to bring up their thing and we'll have to come up with a rationale why we don't want to do whatever they're talking about and then we keep going. But if you if it moves around, if it moves from person to person, you know, to on this project, it's It's you and on the next uh, project, it's, you know, John and on the next project, it's Chad, whatever it is like that becomes hopefully over time, (laughs) if enough people have have done that and maybe done it more than once, it starts to become part of the culture instead of somebody's job. Maybe over time, nobody has to be the designated center because everybody's doing that in their heads because they've done it before. You know, it, it depends on on your situation. And I know people come, people go. We do also uh, recommend if you have someone join the team, do not give them this role on their first project, right? Wait a project or two before so that they can see how it works and also so that they're not – because when you're new on the team, of course, you know, you don't want to speak up at all. It's like super hard to do. So, yeah, there's, there's more to it than that. But, yes, I do, and I think we do in the book acknowledge that, if you're the only, you know, only one on your team of of a certain kind, if you're the only woman on your team, you may already be in this role, right? Without it having been formally set. So making it a thing that everybody does helps hopefully dilute that sense of, oh, well, they're always complaining about whatever we do. It's like, nope, this time it's your job to complain about whatever we do because we need someone to check our work. And this time it's you and the next time it's, you know so and so over there who's going to be checking our work and making sure we're doing the best work we can do right and they may also be doing design and development but their primary role in that given project is stress test our assumptions so that we do the best work that we can and the, and ultimately do the best job we can for the people we're trying to serve right for the for the users hope you know hopefully it also is the best job we can for whoever's paying our salary but it's really doing the best job you can for the people you're trying to reach.
0: Yeah, I really like that because I think, especially as you rotate it around various members, like each member doesn't have to come into that role having perfect understanding of disability issues and screen readers and and gender differences and all the things that they need to care about. But now it becomes their job to find out more about those things. So their job actually becomes – expanding their empathy zone into other people and researching and and asking people like, how might this be impacting a group that I have no knowledge of? And so then each member then slowly increases that zone of empathy so that they can, the whole team then grows in that area. And eventually you don't need someone in that role.
1: Yep, I think you always need someone in that role. I, I don't think that should be something that you're hoping to eventually phase out.
2: I mean, that that's fair. And you know, it might for some teams, you know, they might, I, I think for smaller teams, maybe you could face it out eventually, although you, you may well be right. It's, unfortunately, we've, I've never interacted with someone who's done this over a long enough timescale to find out what happens over a long enough timescale.
3: It, it might be one of those things where let's do it with the pretending that we could achieve that goal, mm. you know, even though we know that we probably won't. So it's like, let's all try to acquire as much knowledge as we can as if we had to, this is something we had to do all the time. Yeah. But, but like remembering in the back of their head, no, we'll probably have to assign somebody, but. <laughs> yeah, probably. And, you know, the, the nice thing is that, uh,
2: hopefully, as someone on a project learns and then they share, hey, here's why this is a problem, and everyone else hopefully it internalizes at least a little bit of that too. You know, it's the, oh, this copy doesn't work because of these situations. Like, oh yeah, I never really thought about that. I'll have to keep that in mind for the future. Anyway.
1: A challenge of this designated dissenter is that we're still counting on whoever rolls into that role from project to project or week to week, whatever it is, that they do have a broader perspective. Um, And there will be some people who simply aren't as capable as other people around the room at doing that well so that's certainly a challenge to also be trying to figure out and i don't have an answer today but i think there there are inherently challenges to still be figured out in that concept i think the concept is a great starting point yeah. i just think we haven't finished working out how to do that in a really effective way mm-hmm. um when you were talking about death earlier i was thinking even when you do start to anticipate death, you, you anticipate it in terms of usually user or someone near them and some sort of trauma related to that. But there's also just the sort of mundane number of people in the world die every year. There was somebody who, when I was preparing a talk on a different subject, contacted me, and she was telling me about on, an, on a dating site, which is not where you're expecting to have you know this come up, but someone within yeah. her broader circle – had passed away and it was front page news. She could not get the dating site to stop matching her to this person. I mean, she was trying to convince them to take it out altogether, but she couldn't even stop them matching. And luckily for her, it wasn't something where it was, you know, deeply traumatic. She she didn't have that kind of close relationship, but she also knew that there were people there who did and Mm -hmm. that there was absolutely no policy or even willingness when they heard this to create a policy was, a really big deal. Another friend, uh, when his mom passed away, he became executor. And, you know, that one is Mm -hmm. a lot more personal. But he found with things like the electric company, he simply could not get them to acknowledge uh, that she wasn't going to be able to fill out this form for them. Yeah. Yeah. Like, a company that big, you'd think that they would be dealing with this more than once ever. And for some reason, it just hadn't come up regardless of whether that had been her son or someone who didn't know her and was an attorney in some way, you know, this should have been thought about.
2: Yeah, it should have been. And I, yeah, there, it seems like so many systems are just, it almost, I have to assume it's, it's sort of a human tendency to try to ignore the fact that we're mortal. So, yeah. you know, so that we don't have a policy for, my mother is not going to be able to fill out this form because she's dead. I, actually, the day after my mother died, I was at uh, home, uh, my parents' home, and uh, the phone rang and my dad answered. And uh, I just, I, I remember him saying, yeah, uh, no, she can't come to the phone right now. Well, she died yesterday. <laughs> and it was like a telemarketer or something. I don't, I don't remember exactly. It wasn't a friend, but it was a... Uh, and he said, they were like, oh, I'm so sorry, and like hung up immediately. And, and I didn't think at the time, but looking back at it, I think now, is that the first time that's ever happened to that company? I mean, you know, why, why do they not have a, you know, some sort of training or script or something to say? You know, when if you find out that someone died, you say we're very sorry. We'll we'll mark that immediately, or what, whatever it is, right? So, yeah.
1: anyway. I feel like there's every single site. This is going to come up. Every single app. Mm-hmm. This is going to come up. And if you didn't hear about it, it's because someone felt like there wasn't a way, or there wasn't a form, or they couldn't figure yeah. out how to contact you. But yeah. unless you have a really tiny amount of users, it definitely has come up whether you heard it or not.
3: Yeah,
2: hundred percent.
0: We've come to the part of the show where we do our reflections, which are just uh, the sort of big takeaways that any of us have gotten out of this show. I think for me, there are certainly a whole ton of interesting new ideas. Certainly, the designated dissenter one is a really interesting one, and it ties in with – I've been thinking recently about um, the idea of doing a pre-mortem on a project where you have a meeting about – what would have gone wrong if we did X, Y, Z, how all the different ways that it could um, have gone poorly. And it sort of ties in closely because it could go socially wrong rather than technically wrong. And that's because you didn't think about one of these things and they match up nicely. So that's really synergizing well for me in my thinking.
2: Yeah, actually in design for real life, page 98, the pre-mortem, (laughs) which is not our idea. There's actually study, uh, there've been studies about this. And uh, Gary Klein wrote about it in Harvard Business Review in 2007. That's one of the people that we refer to. But, yeah, pre-mortems can be absolutely a fabulous way of of anticipating problems. And the way they usually work is you pose a scenario. Things like we've launched the new sign-in, and six months later, new sign-ups are down by 50%. Why? Right. And everyone tries to envision why that might have happened.
1: First of all, there's so many pull quotes from here that um – we're going to have a lot of big text on the transfer page. I was really struck by this whole conversation that we could have a whole other conversation just on all of this and the tension between that designing for time scale and the whole philosophy of agile and move fast and break things. Yeah. Right? I mean, that is a really pervasive philosophy throughout the startup world, particularly. And you can't reform systems without deciding that those philosophies are not how we're going to do things. So I think that's, you know, a whole tricky conversation to have on some other day. But I was just really fascinated by the inherent tension between those.
3: Yeah. Something I, I've i been thinking about with this issue of the dissenter and I again, I think we don't have an answer ne- today necessarily, but I'll be thinking about it is like I'm projecting like if I was in that position and a question about, oh, I don't know, like gender came up and I'm not any particular expert on gender, of course, you know, I have questions and I'm, I want to learn more all the time, but. I'm thinking about how that's like a particularly, it's a challenging position to be in. And it's not that it shouldn't be challenging, but it's a challenging position to be in because if a a person were to bring up, hey, should we really have just a button for male or female? And they might know enough to say that that's an assumption we should question, but they might not know enough to be an expert in that area and like have an answer for it. And so I'll just be thinking about that. Is like, what do we do? How do we form a culture where people can bring up problems or question assumptions without necessarily having a proposed solution to the to the problem? You know, I think that's like a Mm -hmm. that that that's a cultural thing that that I think has merit to it. Where it's like, well, if you're going to criticize, have a solution to suggest, right? don't just don't just criticize. But you know, sometimes there are assumptions that need to be questioned even if there's no apparent solution you know we want to let that question linger so we can go find an answer for it later so yeah, uh, yeah I'll, that's a that's a tricky one I'm gonna be thinking about that
2: yeah and I, I think the I think the way to approach it is to view the dissenter as not someone who's criticizing but someone who is stress testing right the same way that a bridge designer stress tests their bridge design to see if it will in fact hold up the weight of the cars or if it will collapse into, you know, the river, like it has to be stress tested. And and the goal is not to drag everyone down. It's to, to drive everyone to do the best work they can. Yeah. Great.
0: Great way to frame it when you bring up those issues.
1: Well, thank you, Eric, for coming on. I, I think that we all got a whole lot to think about. I certainly a couple of times said, mind blown. So, yeah, I will also be thinking about this for a long time. Thank you for coming on.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was an honor.